I'm Josh. I'm Joe. And this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where your hosts take turns challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store and select a film in under one minute. If a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the video Dropbox and defer to What's in the Basket. And Josh, I don't know if we've done an episode where there's been this much disconnect between the two of us for what we're covering because you, obviously, Madonna super fan, okay. me, Barely paid attention to Madonna until this challenge. I feel for me, I don't know what it was, like not really being into that much music until maybe the late 90s. There's all these 80s artists, Madonna being one of them, but I never realized like how many albums they had and what they are. So looking into this, like, oh my God, Prince is another one. So big in Minneapolis. It's like, oh, he did way more than I thought. So much, yeah. Just wasn't paying attention. Well, here's a good question for you that kind of lends itself to that. So what is your experience, like with Madonna in general, like just growing up, hearing her on the radio, seeing images, what? Like, I'm just curious. Well, sure. Yeah. Well, growing up, uh, I feel the main things were all the jokes about the cone bra Mm -hmm. and also the interview with David Letterman from 1994, which being a David Letterman fan at the time and still... That gave me a very negative view of Madonna. I find that <laughs> yeah. very obnoxious. I mean, looking back at it now, it just feels like she's trying too hard to maintain that aura before she kind of reinvents herself. Like, pretty soon after that, I feel. Really, like, her early stuff, I've never cared for, like, Like a Virgin and Material Girl and Holiday. Like, because they never really spoke to me much, that's more why I never paid attention. But I was way into all of her radio ballads from the 90s. Not knowing that most, if not all, were actually Madonna, because we have Rain, This Used to Be My Playground, I'll Remember, You'll See, and my personal favorite, Secret. I distinctly remember taping that off the radio. And then around 1998, before my parents got cable, my friend taped just a whole bunch of music videos off MTV for me, and one of them was Frozen, Mm. directed by the awesome Chris Cunningham. That's still one of my favorite music videos. So that, I feel, really turned me around on Madonna. As far as, like, film-wise, like, when you have the disconnect with music, did you specifically put the two and two together and you're like, oh, this singer is the same person in this movie that I like? Or was it just like, oh, I like this movie and, oh, I didn't realize that was her kind of thing, like, years later? I mean, it felt kind of like, uh, gimmick's not the right word, but sort of, I guess, of, I mean, the ones I was paying most attention to was Dick Tracy and League of Their Own. And she's great in both. So it's just more of like the, oh, it was this pop star going out of her element to do this. And I really didn't know of any other movies that she did up until, you know, Swept Away got all the negative publicity. But yeah, like when you challenged me to this last episode, opening up her filmography is like, I had no idea. Like Desperately Seeking Susan and Body of Evidence I'd seen. But like all the others, like, oh, geez, no, did not know these existed. Yeah, well, and I only asked that because, again, being a super fan, like, I love hearing different people's answers, especially people who, like, I know you, like, 
you coming to my parties, you know her pro- by proxy, but <laughs> yeah. like you're not actively like going home and like putting on an album or buying one, right? I couldn't mm-hmm. imagine you were like, oh yeah, back in the day I bought the. I mean, if you had to pick one, I'm ass- I'm assuming the most popular thing that I heard growing up um, in my 20s was like, oh, I love the Ray of Light album because it was so different from what she was doing mm-hmm. at the time, and it was kind of like in that happy medium between like alternative and like sort of mainstream pop. Yeah, again, like with the Frozen video, that's what gained respect for me. But for albums now, True Blue, I think, is my favorite album of hers. Because there's like Papa Don't Preach, Live to Tell, Liz La Bonita. I mean, that's I didn't I had no idea that album existed back in the day, but now it's my favorite. That's a great relevant answer to this movie because it was also, you know, one of her albums that she dedicated to Sean Penn, which is going into the you know, longer conversation of this film and them being married, which we can, again, get to. But I'm just really glad to hear, like, your your deep dive in it, because I was a little worried you're going to be like, ugh, here we go, Josh with his Madonna shit, like... <laughs> well, how did you get into Madonna, Josh? Well, I'm glad that you asked, because originally I was... I wouldn't say I was a fan. I was the same way as you, though. Like, I had heard the songs. Like, growing up, my aunt would always, like, pick me and my cousins up and drive us around when we were kids. And she'd blast Express Yourself in Vogue. And she'd, like, have us do these car dances and stuff. So that's my, like, earliest memory of Madonna. Not really necessarily, like, being super into, like, her albums or her singles. Just, like, those moments, right, in my life that the music was the soundtrack. And then it wasn't until high school that uh, one of my good friends, who was also closeted at the time at this private Lutheran school, was a super diehard super Madonna fan. And I was very into Britney at the time. And so we would have these like debates, you know, really like back and forth about like who was the superior artist, right? And of course, he had more on me because he's like, this is someone who's been around in the game for a lot longer. She's done more. But really, like throughout my high school years, it's like our forces kind of like, met and it became this thing where like I was convincing this friend why Britney was a legitimate artist while he was doing the same like he at that point already had been like going to shows like I'm super jealous but like we you know we're in high school 99 to 2002 so he had already gone to the Drown World tour which was her big comeback show after like being out of the game for years because there was a Vita which took up all time that she you know got pregnant and did all these like you know, subsequent albums, but didn't tour. I mean, it was a big fucking deal. Like she was out of the game for a long time until she came back with that Drown World tour. So I sadly didn't get to see that. But when I started getting into her, it was around the time that that had come out. I think it was like, I got super into her greatest hits volume two, which is all that like 90s stuff and beyond. And then we actually ended up going to see her reinvention tour in Chicago. I don't remember what year that was. It might've been like 2004. 2004 but from then on in like I was I was all in like I was sold it like blew me away and then I like slowly did kind of like what you did like a deep dive into certain albums and I got like really obsessed because around the time that time I would say like music and Ray of Light were like my albums that like Ray of Light was around my brother surprisingly who only listens to metal had the fucking album which <laughs> that's what I'm saying like this that album speaks to a certain demographic of people for some reason and the album that cemented my 
future was when Confessions on a Dance Floor came out. Like, I hadn't heard anything like that from start to finish. It was basically an entire, like, dance album, like, that Mm -hmm. all the songs bled into one another and transitioned. And it was just so amazing. And, like, the highlight of my life was, again, the same friend. We had saved up our money to go see the Confessions tour at Madison Square Garden in New York. And we literally, like, flew in that morning, ran around New York, Went to Madison Square Garden that night. We're the very last row in Madison Square Garden <laughs> at the very top. The ceiling was bowed. So, like, I had to duck down to, like, see her standing on stage because we were so high up. And even then, with the screens and everything, it blew me away. You know, my love for roller skating. That was all incorporated mm. into the music videos because it was very, like, 70s new disco, which is I have to say new disco because if you look at sort of the trend the last few years, the Dua Lipa with her album, even that song on Barbie, like it's very that sound, you know, that mm. new synthy sound. And it's amazing because, again, just it just proves like she's not the only one doing this, but she's always so ahead of the trends in certain yeah. ways. And throughout my Madonna journey, like I've now since become obviously a super fan and seen every show since reinvention tour. And I just am continuously blown away. I mean, the point of me selecting this challenge is by the time this album, uh, sorry, this episode drops, it will be around the time that she will be coming to the twin cities for her celebration tour, which is her like eras slash greatest hits tour, which is unheard of for her because Madonna fans know like if there's anything she doesn't like to do it's to like look back like she likes to move forward reinvent herself do new things she'll touch on stuff from the past but she kind of hates just like doing what she's done before and so this tour is a big huge deal for just like the fans because every show I've ever gone to the biggest complaints are a she's too political because she's very vocal about how she feels about the state of the world B, she always comes on notoriously late. Like the show, the show has an eight o'clock start time and she doesn't come out earlier than 10 p.m. Oh my God. I would be so angry. <laughs> this is always like on a weeknight, right? So like diehard fans know, like we're going to go and we're going to have to wait a long time for her to come out. But it is what it is. She's been her in the game for so long. She has, she's consistent, right? So it's not like it's anything new. But the third biggest thing that I hear about is how she doesn't always perform all the hits. Like, people just want to go and hear, like, a Vegas stage show. And, again, the reinventioning, she always does sort of remixed versions or she'll only do a handful of, like, her original songs. So that's why this is such a big deal to me. This is, like, Mecca, the the holy grail for me. Like, she's doing this slew of amazing hits, not one new song, very close to the original And the person live mixing the show is Stuart Price, who is responsible for the entire Confessions on a Dance Floor album, which is my favorite. So that's kind of my experience. And I mean, film, like I always loved her in the films that I saw her in. I mean, other than the obvious A League of Their Own, like I'm with you, like Dick Tracy was so fantastic. I just rewatched Madonna Truth or Dare, loved it. Like I totally forgot how great it is. And course i have a special place for desperately seeking susan which i will spoil here i found this amazing seller on etsy who recreated the desperately seeking susan jacket for me and like fitted it with my measurements and everything so i'm 100 basically going as like my own male inspired version of susan from desperately seeking susan and couldn't be happier miss tetlock 
think we've found our man. Mr. Burns, you can't be serious. If he can be of help, we'll use the devil himself. What about my wallet? There was a wallet in this jacket! You no money! You no go! You stole my last ten bucks, you thieving cornhole pirate bastard! No, bastard! Well, what am I, you fucking... Sir, can we be of any assistance? Yeah, you got a torpedo handy? Look at that. He didn't even finish the nipples on my little sweetheart. Our spotlight of the week is Shanghai Surprise uh, with Madonna and Sean Penn. This movie opens up August 29th, 1986 uh, at a low number 16 at the box office. Number one that week. Movie we just talked about, Stand By Me. Your favorite. This had a $15 million budget and just made $2.3 million back, partly because it had severe marketing cuts leading up to it. Uh, I feel like this was probably just sold on the idea that like, oh, it's the newlyweds Madonna and Sean Penn in a movie. But this gets six Golden Raspberry nominations. Oh, no. Its only win is for Madonna, her first of many wins, and... We talked about this in our Catwoman episode, how the Golden Raspberry Awards definitely single out pop stars, none more so than Madonna. Uh, They're total dicks to her. Yeah, it's a low-hanging fruit. Yeah, but Madonna and Sean Penn are alongside. We have Paul Freeman, who was the villain in Raiders of the Lost Ark. We have Richard Griffiths, who is the Uncle Vernon in Harry Potter movies. Uh, Victor Wong, who's awesome and in everything like Mm -hmm. Big Trouble in Little China and Tremors. Uh, we also have Clyde Kusatsu, which is driving me crazy. Like, you look familiar. And again, I think he's been in a bunch of stuff. Most recently, he was Paxton's grandfather in Never Have I Ever. And then Taru Tanaka, who was a pro wrestler at one time and a bodyguard, but also played Sub-Zero in the Running Man movie. And this is directed by Jim Goddard, who has just done a ton of TV stuff, none of which I was really familiar with. But more notable, the executive producer... <laughs> was George Harrison, of all people, who, for a Madonna film, we get no Madonna music, but we get five songs by George, uh, because the same year, Madonna's lending her song Live to Tell, one of my favorites, to Sean Penn's other movie, At Close Range. And I just have to say, like, this is, I've been watching a lot of footage for, like, the upcoming tour, because, I mean, I'm not about spoilers, like, I'm, I'm all for it with this, because I want to be prepared. It's going to be a big deal, right? And Live to Tell seems to be the most, like, standout moment of the entire show that so far that I can tell. I mean, there's a lot of moments, but I guess it's supposed to be incredibly emotional because it's essentially like a dedication to all of the friends and people that she had lost in her life. And just in general to HIV AIDS, especially in the 80s, because the premise of her show is supposed to be sort of like her life through a story of her music. And it's it like kind of just cuts to this place where she shows images of like her close friends, but then it also, I guess she worked with the AIDS Memorial group to show all of the people that we had lost to HIV and AIDS over the years. And so it's incredibly emotional. She's like floating in this box, singing this song over everyone's head. And I just, I can't wait, but I'm also going to be a mess. Well, one of my favorite things of this movie is uh, the opening title design. That's very James Bondian yeah. was done by Maurice Binder, who did a bunch of the James Bond opening credits. I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't want to say it just out of left field, but I was getting like this odd James Bond feeling to it. Um, It's not James, it's, it has nothing to do with spies, but I, like throughout this movie, I was like, why is this giving me like 007 vibes for some reason? It's very James Bond. Like people I feel 
compared it more to Romancing the Stone because that had just come out, I think, a year before. But I don't see that. I see definitely like a weird period James Bond film because you have like the villain with those ceramic hands the ceramic yeah. <laughs> hands yeah and the the wrestler the pro wrestler like yeah. i was just getting who sort looks of like, like odd job yeah yeah exactly but yes i feel that's where this drew most inspiration from uh and now to critics so good lenny malton uh had this to say about shanghai surprise he gives it his lowest rating a bomb saying missionary madonna hires adventurer pen to capture a cache of stolen opium for medicinal purposes only in 1937 china it's all stupefyingly dull as one critic noted which is weird why are you referencing an unnamed critic in your own review <laughs> yeah as one critic noted it's tough for pen to succeed in the grand adventure movie tradition when the screen legend he most reminds you of here is rezzo rizzo and given that i got curious like what did leonard malton think of the other madonna films and Josh, I would like to read a few excerpts of his reviews. For Dangerous Game, here's Malton at, at his sassiest. He says, Working title was Snake Eyes, which is what the studio rolled when it bankrolled this one. Oh! <laughs> and then, next best thing, just the last line here, he says, Rupert Everett keeps telling Madonna how beautiful she is, but it takes late 40s-style Joan Crawford lighting to try to put that over. It's like, oh, fuck you. Oh, yeah, that's... And she was young at the time, too. Like, I just, I mean, she, honestly, that was like when her body and her whole, like, essence was in her prime because she was doing yoga. She was into Kabbalah. She was like peak health. So, man, well, thanks for putting in the work to do it. Oh, I have to give a shout out to one movie that was unrelated, related, but unrelated to Madonna that I, I watched that I just heard about recently that I thought was amazing. It was this 1994 made for TV movie called Madonna Innocence Loss that aired on Fox. I hadn't even heard about it, but I mean, I'm giving it a shout out because like the whole big deal is like Madonna was working with Diablo Cody and other people to create, right? And she wants to like film her own biopic. Julia mm. Garner is tapped to play her Madonna. Oh. She got hired as the role of Madonna. And then things kind of fell apart. Nobody quite knows where it's at, whether it's still happening or not. People are assuming that's why she's doing this big celebration tour like of her greatest hits so she can like basically fund that get the funding for this movie but yeah and then you know when she got sick like things got shaken up so nobody quite knows where they're at with it but i thought up to this point nothing had existed until someone referenced this 1994 movie and i was like oh my god it's on youtube run don't walk <laughs> and yeah i was like you know what i'm not mad at it like people had issues with like the way she looked and obviously there were no like madonna didn't authorize it so they oh, they only have yeah. like a virgin in the in the movie mm. but none of her actual songs but i don't know i thought it was fun it was a gay old time for me so <laughs> and interestingly enough i guess there was a dennis rodman produced made for tv movie that came out a few years later and i guess the same actress that played madonna in innocence lost played her madonna again in the Dennis oh, wow Robin. so i don't know i just recommend it out there for any like casual madonna fans or even huge madonna fans anyway moving on there are a lot of twists in this joe let me just say that <laughs> off the top i kept especially in the second half like i'd be zoning out a little bit mm -hmm. and then i'm like wait wait what happened why are they where are they now yeah I have no idea what we're doing here. I'll be honest. I was a little worried when, like, I saw the opening. It was like, okay, like, 1930, whatever. And then it was like, 
we'll get to it, but it's just like one year later, I was like, oh no, like we're still in the 30s and I don't know how this is going to play out, but I was pleasantly surprised. I'll just leave it at that. So, <laughs> okay. The opening credits show us these images from the film sort of reflected on a body of water. And right off the bat, we get George Harrison singing the title track until this text appears reading Shanghai 1937, the year of the Japanese occupation. And let me just pause for a brief second just to get it out of the way. How do we feel about the music? Is it offensive or is it okay? (laughs) (laughs) They don't say anything offensive, but it's very stereotypical music. It's very James Bondy of that, like, 80s era yeah like living daylights and like all that kind of sound this one just happens to be like adapting to basically the scenery so it's like hitting you over the head just being like just a reminder (laughs) we're in shanghai but also the latter song that i actually really enjoy it's like the love theme really gave me i'm just gonna say it right now this elo don't walk away from xanadu vibes oh like where there's that whole like animated sequence where they're running around in flowers and jumping into the water and stuff. I was like, this is giving me that same energy, that like 80s off the wall kind of like electro love power ballads music. And I wasn't mad at it. And no, there is no official soundtrack. It is not on vinyl. No. But one day, one day. <laughs> okay, going back to Shanghai Surprise. We go inside a large mansion where we meet Walter Faraday, played by Paul Freeman, like Joseph from Indiana Jones, is the most recognizable thing I remember him from. Yeah. And he is, like, calmly eating dinner while his friend, Willie Tuttle, played by Richard Griffiths, and I had to point out Naked Gun 2. Oh, um, right. That's right. <laughs> he's, he plays two roles because uh, he's a doppelganger in Naked Gun 2. He's pacing, and then he points out, basically, that the Japanese are down the road and headed their way. And Walter assures him they'll be okay and they'll safely escape. So later, Willie's continuing to freak out, mentioning that they're likely to be killed over, what, a bunch of flowers? And that's when Faraday escorts him outside where workers are basically preparing some crates for travel. And he opens one up to reveal that, in fact, the crates do not have flowers, but are actually opium. And he tells Willie that it's the best international currency in the world. And so the two men end up leaving the mansion via rickshaw and arrive at the docks. And as they do, they're passing groups of people who are also fleeing. It's really chaotic. I think things are like exploding and people are screaming. And Willie realizes, uh, oh, wait, we're actually heading away from the boats now. And that's when Faraday mentions that they're taking a detour so he can retrieve China Doll. So they arrive at their location and the men pulling the rickshaw immediately take off with all their stuff. So they're like, wait, what's going on? And Walter and Willie are ambushed by the Chinese military, led by menacing Megan. Megan? I think it's Megan. Who I'm just going to shout out now. Like, I was somewhat attracted to this actor. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I'm like, I don't know if it's like, you know, that bad boy syndrome. But I'm like, he's kind of sexy. Is this year MVH? I mean, of course, Sean Penn. But yes. yeah, there's something about him that I was like, all right, I see you. So Walter learns that China Doll, the woman they were referencing earlier, du- double-crossed them and was escorted away with her loyal servant. And Maigen asks about the opium, but Walter mentions that they both must have been double-crossed because someone took off with it. So Walter's immediately searched, and that's when he hands over this, I don't know how to explain it other than like a travel belt yeah, that has like multiple compartments. And Megan starts searching through each pouch, finding, you know, passports, money, random things. 
And when he opens the last one, it immediately explodes, blowing both of his hands off. <laughs> and it's so gruesome. <laughs> it is. And I got to say, like, in the beginning, I was like, I don't know, this movie, like, you know, I'm not anti, like, 30s inspired or even 30s sleuthy movies. I was like, where's this going? And then as soon as that happened, I was like, okay, I don't care. Like, I'm all in. This is amazing. Because you just see him laying there with these nubs, like these blown up bloody stumps, just like face down. It's so great. So uh, Walter, Willie run for their lives and are chased to the waterfront where they jump into the water and try swimming away. But again, brutal, Joe. Like Walter is shot in the back and you see like the explosions in his back as he starts immediately sinking, leaving Willie just kind of splashing around like his fate's unknown. We don't know what's going on, but it fades out. And eventually we tune back in to a title that says one year later. So at a different waterfront, we meet elderly. Of course, his name has to be Mr. Burns. And his uh, button-up assistant, Tatlock, who's played by Madonna. Hey. And they are collecting funds for the Helping Hand missionary. And so they are walking along the docks, and they come across the shirtless drunk, played by Sean Penn, who has this, like, long hair. I don't know. It's I couldn't tell if it was an extension or a bad wig. But (laughs) he's screaming at a boater. You know, they're tossing his things to shore. And I love that Mr. Burns turns to Tylock and he's just like, oh, we found our man. And she's like, uh, no, like this is a mess. But Burns approaches him and says, sir, may we be of assistance? And Wazy, played by Sean Penn, he's like, yeah, you got a torpedo handy? As he's like yelling at this boat that's just kind of like driving off. And then he like downs this liquor that he's drinking and then throws the bottle at the boat and it smashes. It's like immediately off the bat. We're like, okay, he's pretty great, right? So this drunk ends up introducing himself as Glendon Wacy, And that's when Burns asks him for his help because he knows Chinese. And he mentions that he and Tylock need to locate a missing rickshaw boy and communicate with him. And so that's why they are listening his help. And Burns flashes some money telling him uh, that Tylock will hang on to it until the job is done. So Wacy begins to dress himself, putting on this bright colored tie with this image of a naked woman on it. And he's like super crass. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I bought a ton of these and I plan to sell them in L.A. They'll they'll eat them up because they're like they're glow in the dark ties. Right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because yeah. he says um, basically hitting on Tadlock being like it glows in the dark. If you want to go somewhere where it's dark, I can show you. And she's just like, no, thank you. Uh, so then we cut to in town where Wacy's accompanying Tadlock. It's just the two of them at this point. And he's begging her for some money so we can eat. Well, first he's like, can I get some money? And she's like, no, I know you're going to just buy alcohol. And he's like, well, I'm so starving. I just, I'll, I want to get some money so I can buy some rice. And so she gives him some out of the goodness of her heart. And he immediately goes to like a vendor and gets like a drink and knocks it back. And she's you know, standing over him like, I thought I told you no drinking. And he's just like, it's rice wine. Ah, like, <laughs> see, and now I'm steady as a whatever he says as he holds his hand up. So immediately he's like, okay, you know what? The best way to find a rickshaw boy is to take a rickshaw. And she's got a moral stance against it because she thinks it's like inhumane. But he's just like, look, lady, this is the best way we're going to find them. So they end up taking their own rickshaw down to like basically a waterfront where there's like this group of people that are standing around and they're like cockroach gambling is the only way I could describe it. Tadlock fronts him some money against her wishes to get some buy-in so he can get information. And that's when Wazy asks about the rickshaw boy's father, uh, which he got this 
information in advance from Burns and Tadlock. Basically, they're trying to find this man, Wu Shen Shi. So he's asking the group, you know, does anyone know any information on Wu Shen Shi? And the crowd immediately gets riled up, causing Tadlock and Wei to flee. So they like spit at the ground and start screaming and running after them like they're going to kill them. And that's when they're like fleeing from the scene. They notice this man following them, this tall, thin man, which I have to say, I'd probably play the role pretty great because we look very similar. He's following them. And then we get this whole like extended rickshaw chase scene. I like this because it seems like, oh, no, we have to run away. And then they just get into rickshaws and have other people run for them. It's like so elaborate where like they are like going downstairs and like bouncing (laughs) at some point. It's very slapsticky. I don't know yeah. if it was intended, but it's fun. It's just like so over the top. Um, and then immediately, you know, the man starts gaining on them. They kind of block him for a hot second until he jumps off the rickshaw, starts running full speed at them by foot. And that's when Wazy jumps from his rickshaw and tackles the man to the ground and attempts him to beat him with a shoe until the man introduces himself as like, wait, no, I'm Justin Cronk. I'm here to assist you in finding Wu Shi, but we have to discuss this in private. And that's when Kronk reveals that the man, Wu Shi, is a renegade and owns an exorbitant amount of money, and that's why he's got such a bad reputation. So by taxi, Kronk takes, I'm going to just call him TW when I'm talking about them together, <laughs> to an office where they meet Ho Chong, played by Victor Wong, like you said, in everything. Uh, he bargains with them. God, this is such a weird scene, too. (laughs) So he's bargaining with them to basically show them the whereabouts of Wu Shanxi via diagram of the human body. But it's so awkward. It's like, so, you know, it's the naked man, naked woman. And he's like talking with uh, with Wazy, basically like, I'll give you the groin and the arm and the pit, you know, and he's like, no, 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 I'll take the, the head. And then they talk about like the, oh, God, what do they call the? Her parts, like her boobs, basically, like the bazongas or something. I don't know. It's so it's so ridiculous. And she, of course, is like not having it and getting really frustrated. So eventually they strike a deal. She pays them the money. And that's when Ho Chong leads them to this basically smelly waterfront and is like, oh, yeah, he's down there in this hole. And it's like, we all know it's about to happen, right? But they're like, where? I don't see him. And he's like, you got to look. And then he ends up pushing them in to it's basically a cargo housing bay where like there's a bunch of fish that are flopping around. And that's why it smells so bad. And Ho Chong yells down to them the next time it will be sharks. So you better watch your back. So this is probably one of my favorite scenes where we get like shots of Tylock and Wazy separately like bathing at these bathhouses and like everyone that like walks or like swims close to them immediately starts holding their nose. Yeah. But I love that it's like her first. She's just like bathing and, you know, like she's just got her shoulders and everything underneath submerged, but her hair looks great. And these hacker like Asian women just like are talking and then like all of a sudden they're like, oh, God, and plug their noses and <laughs> swim away. Uh, and same thing happens, you know, to Wazy. But at Wazy's basically bathhouse, he's visit, visited by Kronk, who gives him tomato juice and sort of mocks him about the smell and what he set him up. And Wazy immediately threatens them. But that's when Kronk tells him, look, I saved your life by not turning you over to more severe group of individuals. And that's when during their conversation, Kronk basically tells him like, oh, Wu Shanxi does not have any sons. I don't know who you're looking for. You must have to talk to Burns and Tatlock because they're obviously lying to you. And so he gets super pissed, gets out of the bathhouse. And that's when he meets up with Tatlock, basically grilling her about it. And she admits, all right, all right, there is no rickshaw son. 
and starts telling him that they are looking for Wu Shenxi because a year ago he betrayed the Opium King, Walter Faraday, who we saw in the op opening. And Wu Shenxi is the only one that knows the whereabouts of 1,100 pounds of opium, which could help out hundreds of wounded and hurt people at the missionary. So Wazy tells her that he's heard the story before and references it as, you know, the opium basically as Faraday's flowers. And that's when Wazy tells her it's a myth and mentions he's done. He's not going to help her with any of this. And she reminds them, okay, fine, but we have your things at the mission, so you gotta follow me to get it. So they return to Helping Hands, and Mr. Burns apologizes about the whole situation to Wazy and even hands him a ticket to L.A. And he tells them, you know, it leaves in two days, and you'll have to spend another few nights in a hotel that Burns booked for him out of the goodness of his heart. And Tylock immediately tries to make it up to him by inviting him out for dinner. So then we get a shot of this cleaned up Wazy now. Thank God his hair is cut. He's looking good. Accompanying Tadlock to this fancy restaurant. And that's when they're surprised by Kronk, who's just there and sits down at their table. I love that. Just takes the initiative. But then we also learn that Mr. Tuttle, aka Willie, is revealed to be alive and also joins them at the table. And mm. just a reminder, this is the guy that jumped into the water in the beginning with Faraday, in case you don't remember. So Tadlock admits that she invited Tuttle so he could share his firsthand experience of Faraday's flowers to prove that it's all true. And that's when Tuttle tells Kronk that, you know, it'd be interesting to introduce Wazy to China Doll because he's just her type. And goes on to explain that China Doll is this woman who is trained as an imperial, imperial concubine and believes she is an empress. Uh, she was one of Faraday's mistresses and might have information on the whereabouts of the flowers. So Tadlock, of course, is like, nope. We're not having that. He's not going there to, t to talk to her about it. But they eventually, I don't know, twist their arm, I guess, because they're making their way to her place. And that's when Tadlock and Wazy arrive outside. I, I can only assume the place that Faraday went in the opening. And they run into a gate that's padlocked. And this is where we get our sort of sassy moment from Tadlock, who ends up picking the lock with a hairpin. And she mentions, uh, yeah, I used to go to an all-girls school with an extremely strict curfew. Madonna's got skills. Yep. We're giving her some depth instead yeah. of the one-dimensional character, right? Uh, so on the grounds, we see, I don't know, this is a pretty great visual, actually. So they come to sort of the waterfront, and there's a lot of fog uh, <laughs> on this, like, sort of dock. And this boat rows to shore, handing Wazy a note, reading, Welcome, Mr. Wazy. I kind of love it because it's sort of creepy. Mm. and that Wazy's immediately uneasy about it because he doesn't know what he's walking into. But that's when Tadlock picks his pocket and threatens that if you don't go to her, I'm going to tear up your ticket to L.A. And so he agrees and leaves her ashore. And this is when we get Breath Away from Heaven, our second song by George Harrison playing. This is probably the most Asian-inspired sounding song because it's like that dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah. And it's like super slow and just really draws it out. But um, yeah, Breath Away from Heaven by George Harrison plays as Wazy's rowed out to a large dormant ship. And inside he is met by China Doll's maid who accepts basically this gift that he has of a large ceramic figurine. And she takes him to wait for China Doll where he admires like there's this large collection of dolls. And that's when China Doll appears and tells him, basically this really intense story behind one of the dolls that he's like admiring before sauntering away. But I think she's even dressed exactly like the doll. 
And I think it's a story that will play later on about like an empress, etc. So we got to another great scene, Joe. Wazy in a tub. And this is when China Doll's uh, maid hands him this bowl of pills, I think it is. I can't quite <laughs> tell what it is, right? She's like, here, please take one. And he's like, no, I'm well equipped. I don't need that. Basically, I had to write the entire quote down because it's so fantastic. She says, my mistress is well schooled in such ceremonial acts as the West Wind, the Wounded Tiger, the Chair, the Obedient Wife. She also has mastered the six blown breath stimulants, the eight shallow penetrations, the nine minor and 11 major positions, as well as the technique of passive acceptance force for dominance, contortion, and mobile union. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> and that's when she walks away. He just kind of looks around like, okay, and takes like a few more pills before she's out of the room. Well, Wazy uh, has this fun with China doll. We get some shots of the concerned Tadlock burning through a pack of cigarettes in the dock. Until she finally decides to leave. And I think this is, again, giving us sort of this different side of her. Because up until now, we see her as a sort of, like, buttoned-up, uptight missionary, right? But she's, like, smoking cigarettes, picking locks, being real sassy. So, the next morning, uh, Wazy returns to his hotel with a huge smile on his face. Uh, And in his room, he finds Tadlock with the same clothes on from the night before, sleeping in his bed. But And then she's, like, immediately, like, what did you learn about Faraday? But... He's like, ah, I didn't get anything. I was having so much fun, I almost forgot my own name. So she demands he return to China Doll to get information, but he's like, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to go out and get some breakfast, and then I'm coming back and taking a nap. So outside his door, we see him, like, open the door, and Kronk is there, like, eavesdropping. And I love that, too. He's just like, anything we can repeat for you, Mr. Kronk. (laughs) (laughs) And Kronk tells him, "Uh, look, I have some information that's going to save your life. And he's like, I don't care. And he's like, come on, it'll cost you, but it really is going to help you out. But instead, Wazy's like, no, I'm going to just blow right past you and ask these kind police outside my um, hotel what the best place for breakfast is. And that's when the police immediately, like, grab him and throw him in the back of their cop car and drive off. We see Wazy's taken to an interrogation room where we are reintroduced to Mygen who now has these two ceramic hands. And I love, Joe, that there's one of them has space for, like, just a cigarette. <laughs> like, of course, we had to fashion it, right, so he could continue smoking. Yeah, this is definitely a play on Dr. No, the original James Bond film with the villain who also has the fake hands. It's so great, though. So here we are at the interrogation room where uh, Wazy's asked about China Doll and refuses to answer. And that's when Mygan puts him in this Basically, bamboo contraption, which I have to say, is this an earlier form of saw? Like yeah. the movie saw? Because <laughs> yeah. it's got like these pointy, this thing goes around his neck and it's basically daggers like pressed against his throat. And then there's these like daggers that are like right behind his calves. And every time he doesn't answer a question, someone hammers the spikes from behind his calves like closer and closer. Like they're going to basically be like pounded right into his legs. And there's some comment about like, oh, let's see how good you are of thinking on your toes or something like that. Like, because that's the point. Like you keep moving your feet higher and higher. And so you can't stand Mm. anymore. Uh, So Wazy, of course, caves in and tells him all about Faraday's flowers and then immediately starts passing out. And when he wakes back up in his room, we see Tadlock is there and mentions that Kronk was trying to warn him. And she finds out basically Wazy's drunk at this point. And she's trying to persuade him to sober up. But notices the marks on his neck 
from the interrogation and immediately pities him. And that's when Wazy tells her, I'm done. I'm out. No more. I don't need this. And she's like, I can't do this without you. And then tries to basically bribe him by starting to undress. And he's like, no, it's not going to work, baby. Like, I'm, I'm calling your bluff. Like, you're lying. But she is pretty adamant, Joe. I mean, can't blame a girl, right? She climbs into bed, takes off all her clothes under the covers, puts his hand on her breast, and then, man, she really goes for it. Starts to kiss him and then, like, gets on top of him and starts writhing around. And that's when, of course, it's like, I mean, he can't resist. It's like, okay, I'm obligated. And they start going at it. Because that's the thing. He's just like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not obligated. I'm not obligated. (laughs) Eventually, yeah, just, okay, I'm obligated. So later, we see Tadlock. Wazy wakes up from post-coital, right? She's there. She's totally getting hammered now at this point. And she's telling him, I'm totally out of control. And I shouldn't have done that. And I release you from your obligations. And I love this too. So she like sits on a window and a windowsill and he's like, are you sure? And she's like, absolutely. And like knocks one back and then immediately falls backwards (laughs) out the window. But thankfully we learn she's fine. And outside the window, she just fell. Basically, she's there on like the ground level. She fell into like a or something because she fell into a dirt pit that has ducks. And uh, Wazy shows pity on her and agrees to help her. And this is actually a really, like, sweet, charming scene between the two of them where, like, Mm -hmm. he's kind of not playing that, like, dick role anymore. He's kind of coming around. So uh, she reveals to him, though, like, great, you can help, but you are not going back to China Dolls. And he tells her, you know, I don't have to. That, in fact, while we were in the act, they did discuss Faraday's flowers. And there's a pretty graphic scene, actually, of them, like, going back to when they were like in the middle of having sex because he's like don't stop and she's just like no we got to talk about this like in the middle of them having sex right basically she reveals to him that the flowers were given to a buyer named joe go and then we flash back to the present where tw is now checking out this lead of joe go by attending the shanghai gold cup horse race and that's where we get a shot of my gun kind of tailing them before we see our sleuths are introduced to Jogo, played by Clyde Kusatsu, who, like Joe said, is also in a ton of things. And he's like throwing this baseball around, which comes out later, like, what is happening? Because he just keeps throwing it, right? But he's like, reveals to them, a year ago, he put down a big payment so Wu Chen Shi would deliver five crates of opium. Someone made a switch, and the crates contained basically that he received mostly bricks and one small flower of opium. But he's convinced it wasn't Wu. He thinks it was actually Faraday who did that. And then they're immediately interrupted by this loud explosion in the room. Tadlock's like, what the hell was that? And he's like, oh, he pulls out this identical travel belt that we saw in the beginning that blew off Maigon's hands. And he's like, oh, it's this new thing I called Shanghai Surprise. Oh, (laughs) I was kind of wondering up to this point, I was like, what is happening? Oh, okay. Clever. Clever. I get it. So Jogo mentions that Wu is still alive and promises to set up a meeting between them if they agree to bail Jogo out of his debt. And Wazy is like, I got one better and grabs this baseball, right? And then throws it. Joe, this is so awkward. Past Jogo. And Jogo's like, what was that? And he's like, knuckleball. And he's like, please teach me how to how to do that. And he's like, I will. Anyway, so yes, he agrees. They teach him how to knuckleball. And then Tadlock and Wazy are taken to a seedy boat 
that is full of like, I don't know if it's just like relocated people or full of or, or addicts or what, but they end up attacking Tedlock and uh, Wazy taking Tedlock's purse. I don't know. It's almost sexually assaulty a little bit because they're like mm-hmm. tackling her and ripping at her clothes. But thankfully, Wuxian Shi appears, notices the marks on Wazy's neck and saves them. And that's when he basically pulls his shirt down and reveals the same marks on his neck as well. And kind of just tells him briefly the story, like the last phoenix, about the last phoenix. So later, while Wazy and Tadlock meet with Tuttle in a restaurant, Wazy mentions the man without hands, prompting Tuttle to tell them about his history with him and blowing them off. And Krunk appears and reveals that uh, Maigon is a warlord. And this triggers Wazy, prompting him to leave with Tadlock. On their way out, they're summoned by Joe Go's goons. So there's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah, there's so much. Like, where are we at now? Yeah. What are we doing? So they meet up with him, and he too is like, what happened with Wu Shanxi? And so Wazy tells him about the last phoenix. And that's when Joe Go mentions this elaborate story about the last phoenix scratching at the emperor's grave. Uh, That's when basically Wazy and Tylock are kind of at a stalemate. Like, they're like, I think. We've exhausted all our options. We have no idea what's happening at this point. So <laughs> so let's just go our separate ways. So they have this pretty great, again, walk and talk, great chemistry, where someplace else plays. And this is that like Xanadu moment that mm-hmm. I felt like I was having, where they kiss before Tadlock grabs a car and drives away. So Wazy returns to his hotel alone and then is immediately held at gunpoint by Tuttle and Kronk who tell them that they did some digging on Maigon and learned that he contributed to peddling stolen jewels from a royal tomb. And then they show him this picture of him sitting with Faraday and deduce that they're both involved in the jewel theft, a.k.a. last the last phoenix. They're like kind of putting two and two together of like that story and like their act and all of that. Oh. And apparently the jewels belong to an empress that China Doll mentioned now again, even more so ways he's putting it together, being like, oh, that's the Empress that China Doll was mentioning with that doll that I was admiring when I first met her. So he returns to China Dolls, where he questions her about the jewels, and she then describes the jewels as flowers, to which Wazy realizes, oh, I see. Faraday's flowers are not opium, they're actual jewels, and that's oh. the reference. So the opium does not exist at this point. And basically, we learn Faraday stole them from Maigon. China Doll mentions that Maigon came to her years ago trying to get information on Faraday and ended up brutally actually ripping off her fingernails. <laughs> like only three of them, though, in an attempt to question her about the whereabouts. So Wazy returns to shore, uh, takes a cab back into town. Of course, the cab is immediately like shot at and taken over by Maigon. Maigon basically grills Wazy saying, I need you to retrieve the heavenly garden, in quotes, basically jewels, is what that's what they call the jewels, or you're going to be killed. And Maigan demands, if you're a man of your honor, you will shake on it. And I love <laughs> that. That's when, like, Wazy slowly puts his hand out to shake him. And then it's so awkward, Joe. Like, he just, like, cups both ceramic hands over his hands and you hear like this crunching noise and i'm like would that even really hurt though because those things can't be that heavy right like the ceramic would crack more than anything this is the moment where i was like this is very james bond like this moment yeah yeah so anyway Wazy returns to the helping hands tells tadlock and burns that there's no opium crushing their you know dreams 
But he does say there are jewels and suggests if they can bargain with China Doll to get those jewels from her, they might be able to get some of the jewels to pay for opium. So Wazy escorts Talok to China Doll's boat. She kind of grills them about why she should help them, but eventually gives them, hands them over when Talok has this very empathetic answer. So she hands them this doll that Wazy admired earlier and tells them that Basically, the jewels on the doll were each individually hand-stitched and are, in fact, the Heavenly Gardens. So, mm-hmm. shock, surprise, twist. He was looking at the jewels all along. Uh, Tadlock and Wazy return to shore and are immediately attacked by the police. Jogo appears and attempts to drive them to safety. There's sort of a chase, but then they're cut off. Maigan approaches the group, demands the jewels from Wazy, and that's when he pisses off Tadlock because he happily complies and she realizes, oh, you're a snake. You're just trying to get out of the situation and not actually help us. So Wazy searches his pockets, but immediately can't find them. And Joe, let me tell you, at this moment, I was like, please, please, please let this movie do it. And they do it. Oh, I'm so happy. Because an officer searches him and finds the travel belt, right? Oh. My gun is immediately like, uh uh-uh, uh, I am not doing this again. And he's like, you open it. So Wazy, you know, he does. He's opening each compartment, taking out personal items. He's very like hokey about it too. I think there's one compartment with like silk stockings. He's like, you never know when you need a pair of those. You always got to have a pair of those on you or something, right? But he comes to the last compartment where Jogo immediately hits the deck. And Wazy's like, there's nothing in there. I promise it's just mothballs. But Mygon's like, Open it, ho. And so (laughs) he immediately opens it and ends up dumping mothballs out. And everything is fine. And the pack is handed over to Wygon, who has it like both hands, like palms up, just like looking at it, right? Uh, And Wazy's giving him this super long speech, like, you know, about bullying and like, oh, how dare you do this? And like, you really need to think about other people before you. Th- and then the bomb goes off and it takes out <laughs> Wygon and all of his men. And it's just like, holy shit. I was like dying. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> like, if you don't love this movie, you got to at least admire these moments because it is so hilarious. So uh, Jogo mentions now that they're all safe because obviously like i said the bomb took out wagon and all the men that are there the police somehow jogo mentions it's too bad the jewels were destroyed in the explosion and wacy's like aha i had them in the rowboat the whole time which how did no one see them right but jogo immediately snatches them and tries taking off and i love that todd locks like i do not accept this and she chases (laughs) him knees him in the balls and that's when wacy uh uses his knuckleball to knock out jogo's goon so they return to the helping hand and hand them over to Mr. Burns. And, oh, Joe, the twists are not over yet. Because Tuttle and Kronk appear and hold them at gunpoint. And they demand the jewels, but are taken out by karate, like, infused Mr. Burns all of a sudden, right? What? And that's when Burns gets the gun and, <gasps> twist, removes the disguise, revealing that he's Faraday. Ah. Uh. And I gotta say... I honestly didn't see this coming. Did you? I did not either. I'm like, I don't think I was paying enough attention to notice that. Like, is it a pretty obvious disguise throughout this movie? I had to look in the credits because I was like convinced that the actor playing Mr. Burns was the uh, Grandpa Joe 
from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with Gene Wilder. Like, I was convinced that was the same man. And then I was like, no, he would have been older than that because that came out in like late 70s. But then I was like, but this is what year? 80 what? 86. I was like, yeah, it's not. Then when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, was it him the whole time? Because part of me also wondered, like, did they have an old actor playing him? And then they just quickly, like, did a bait and switch. Like, oh, it was him the whole time. But I think it actually was him the whole time. They just did, like, old age makeup to make him look great, actually. So props to them. I was like, they did a great job. Like, watching it a second time, I was like, yes, that's absolutely him. You can (laughs) see it. You just, the twist is great. So Faraday takes Wazy's ticket from him to L.A., locks him and Tadlock in this, basically their own, like, wicker baskets. I forgot about this And then there's this really goofy scene where Wazy, um, before he leaves, he's basically like, hey, but what about the opium? And Faraday's like, it is real. I just was the mastermind behind all of this. So he leaves the two of them who are kind of bouncing around in their wicker baskets, right? She tries picking the lock. It doesn't work. Then they're like shimming the damn wicker baskets and they end up going to the edge of like a staircase and immediately <laughs> tumbling it down it. But like the entire time, Joe, it's like this ADR scene between them, like talking in the baskets and shots of like their eyes through like the handle. <laughs> yeah. And then just to like really make it 10 times worse, there's like a version of chopsticks playing like the that's chopsticks, right? When it's like dun 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 because it's it slows down like that, but it's like literally a version of that when you're listening to them like shimming around. It's so obnoxious. And that's when they immediately you know, they they crash down the stairs, they're let out of the baskets, thankfully. And that's when they meet this man who lets them out, who introduces himself as the real Mr. Burns, who just returned from a missionary. So we got TW. We race back to the docks, take a ferry to Faraday's boat. Wazy arms himself with an umbrella, finds his room, gets the jewels. Faraday totally just does not even care at this point. And is like, you know what? Take them. We are all double crossed. He takes one of the little jewels, slams it down with a shoe and sees it like totally explode. And he's like, do you know how tough diamonds are? This shouldn't really be like, you should be able to destroy a diamond with a shoe. And so he points out that the jewels are fake. China Doll outsmarted them all. She must have rode off into the sunset with the jewels. And he mentions it's all over and that they should, basically the two of them, should now just like get out of Shanghai because there's nothing left for them. And we do hear a quick voiceover mentioning last call for deboarding. So Tadlock tells them, you know, despite what you think, I want to actually return and do, do good things with the missionary. So she says her goodbyes and parts from Faraday and Wazy. So... One of our last scenes, someplace else plays again. As Wazy watches Tadlock ride the ferry back to the mainland, it's very melancholy, right? And suddenly he has a change of heart and instructs the crew to grab his three trunks before taking his own ferry back, where he calls out to Tadlock so romantically, catching her attention. (laughs) They fight their way through the crowd, and that's when she, I think they kiss, and she asks, what made you stay? And he says, I never got your full name. And she says, it's Gloria, which... I don't know if we were supposed to be like, oh, you know, or what. I'm just like, why didn't they just say her name, right? But there's the big on-screen kiss, which is, I think, the poster of the film, right? And then we get a quick shot of Faraday out on the boat, leaving the docks, freaking out, waving at them. And Wheezy and Tadlock are confused as they watch him calling out to them. And that's when 
he, you know, Wazy's immediately distracted because, again, one of his trunks is knocked over. He's like, God damn it, and starts rearranging all the ties that spilled out and putting them back in. And Twist notices a false bottom, Ooh. and underneath them is all of the opium. Hey. And so Wazy celebrates and tells Gloria that Faraday just gave her the best bouquet of flowers she could ever ask for, and they smile and wave as he rides off. And that's the end of the film. So I'm dying to know your thoughts, Joe. Well, this is definitely, I'd say, the strangest Madonna film Mm -hmm. where it's kind of the only one where she's not really doing any variation of her known personality. Like she's very much playing against type as this like uptight missionary. If nothing else, this film is kind of a curiosity. I don't think it's a very good film. But I don't think it justifies the hate to give it a bomb. Yeah. But, well, I hope Madonna and Sean Penn had fun on it, though. What What were your thoughts? I surprisingly really liked it. I'm not saying it's, like, the best Madonna film ever, right? But, like, I would consider it, like, a great rewatch. Because, I mean, I had to watch this twice, and it didn't feel like homework to me. Like, sometimes, you know, like, serious films are, like, again, this 1930s kind of caper film. I was like... I don't know how this is going to go, but even watching it a second time, like I had a lot of fun kind of waiting for these silly moments that happen throughout (laughs) it. And like you said, I agree. Like, I don't think it deserves the backlash that it did. I could see, you know, it coming out of this at the time and like people shitting on it because they're taking it more serious than we are. But like, I think if you go to the lens of like, it's just a fun, silly movie. And again, low-hanging fruit. It's so easy to be like, oh, Sean Penn and Madonna are terrible. It's like, no, they're good. They're fine. For not being a classically trained actor and this not being her main profession, I think she does a really good job of slipping in and out. But I've always thought that with a lot of other people that I never got the hate. Maybe it's just something that I didn't see. But like Mariah Carey with her films and TV, Britney Spears, Crossroads, Christina, Burlesque. We've talked about this in other episodes. Like... It's just so easy to be like, oh, they're so bad. But it's like, give me a reason why they're so mm-hmm. bad. Like, yeah. uh, you almost want to hear that and be like, give me like a list of things that you think are so obnoxious. So, yeah, Joe, uh, that was Shanghai Surprise. And I'm so glad we covered it. And I was going to say, should we go to our challenge number two for the year? Yeah, now it's time for a new challenge. And Josh interesting fact about our next episode it falls directly on valentine's day uh so in that spirit i have a very unique challenge for you there's not much to choose from but it's all going to be pretty pertinent to the holiday so josh the section of the video store you must choose a movie from is a poison ivy film Ooh. So there are four of them, which (laughs) I didn't realize because, you know, Drew Barrymore, Alyssa Milano, Jamie Presley, and then there's a fourth. It was a Lifetime movie with Shauna Waldron from Little Giants. So I didn't realize she was in that. Oh, my God. I watched. So spoiler alert, I own all four because that was a (laughs) that was a must have for me from Shout Factory on Blu-ray. And in fact, I kept going back and forth, I'll just say this, with my best friend who, Wink, will be a future guest on the pod sometime, mm. someday. But I I would tell her consistently, like, I want to buy this damn 
collection so bad, but I just don't want to spend the money. And so she had gotten it for me for my birthday one year. And I was just so ecstatic because I have a soft spot for these films. But here's the challenge, okay? I don't know if we want to time it or not, but I'm just going to say flat out. One is very serious and dark. Two is very campy, but sexy and fun. Three is insane because it's Jamie Presley and Susan Tyrell. Again, shout out to our Alvin and the Chipmunks episode who did Claudia. (laughs) She is in it. She's just got this whole turn that's amazing. And then four is just hot flaming garbage because (laughs) it's made so long after the fact. And it's basically like by name only. So. Well, okay. I'm going to start an arbitrary time. So. Okay. Have a minute, Josh. So I'm going to say, oh man, it's really between there. Four, I don't, that's not even in my. By view, it's one, two, or three. Honestly, mm-hmm. let's be honest. And I'll always have to say, like, I think the one that's most memorable to me is two. The problem is they're not good. I mean, <laughs> two and three are not good, <laughs> but they have moments that are fun. So now I'm okay. I'm gonna eliminate three because I don't know. Three is just way too. Ah, God, I, Joe, this is actually really hard. One is the classic one, but I, I just, I want to go for two. I just don't want you to be mad at me for picking that one because you're going to oh, be like, this is boring and I don't get it. But it, it also has uh, these very uncomfortable scenes because the romance, you know, every movie, every Poison Ivy film is about a younger girl kind of having these sexy moments with an older man, right? And two specifically is about a teacher and a student a college, college, okay, let's just be clear, college. But the teacher in 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 mind is the husband to Virginia Madsen in Candyman, if you mm. remember that. Who oh, ends yeah, up stepping yeah. out on her in that movie, too. And remember, yeah. she kills him at the end, Trevor? Yeah. And so that might be a really good one because that'll lead into a conversation about sexy ugly in the way that I think... Ugly is a very harsh word, but there's a saying that sometimes you can find people that are not so attractive, somewhat sexy. And he definitely fits that bill for me. I think I just, I can't relive the trauma of seeing um, Tom Scars. Oh, Tom Skerritt. Skerritt, Tom Skerritt. I cannot relive the trauma of seeing Steel Magnolia's own beloved father, Tom (laughs) Skerritt, as the quote unquote older man having sex with Drew Barrymore, a young Drew Barrymore. It's just like... I remember when I watched that with my friend, I just couldn't look at him the same. I just felt gross. <laughs> I think two is a safe bet because it's so bananas. And it's a great conversation on Alyssa Milano. All right. Two it is. Poison Ivy 2, Lily. <laughs> yes. I will say uh, my basket pick was a trick. It was going to be Batman and Robin because Uma Thurman plays Poison Ivy. But I assumed you would not oh go for the God. basket. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well... Thank you, everyone, for listening. We're your hosts, Josh Gorski and Joe Larson, with sound mix and theme music by Jason Mitchell. If you like what you heard today, please follow and review on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit us at Video Dropbox Podcast on Instagram and contact us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com. And until our next Shanghai surprise, remember to be kind and please rewind.